welcome to this unpacked short. I'm Charlie Pickles, managing editor here at Unheard, and I am joined, as always, by the wonderful Peter Franklin. Hello. Our unpacked guru, and also by the delightful Sally Chatterton. Hello. Our deputy editor. So today we are talking about snackdowns and desire lines, which I can hazard a guess that most of our listeners have no idea what either are. So, Peter, can you start by explaining what those two things actually mean? Okay, let's start with the desire line, um, which sounds maybe uh, slightly racy, but it's actually something... Not on this podcast, Peter, (laughs) honestly. (laughs) It's actually something really quite mundane. Um, It's where you see a shortcut across a piece of grass, right? And you see the worn-out path of, of bare earth, where people have have been trespassing across. And um, it's called a desire line, so that's obviously the the line of route that people choose for themselves. And it's kind of a sign that the whoever planned out the official pathways got it wrong. Um, So it's a kind of bottom-up planning issue. Okay, and a snack down? A snack down, somewhat more complicated, right? First of all, I better begin with a neck down, which is uh, what the Americans call an extension of a pavement or a curb or a sidewalk, right? Um, and a snack down is when you've got snow and an area of snow in the road hasn't been obliterated by the cars going um, travelling along that road because it shows that that's a bit of the road that the cars don't use, right? So again, it reveals, the obliterated path of snow reveals the true kind of desire line for the traffic. Okay, so I have to admit, I'm still not entirely sure I'm clear about neck downs and snack downs, uh, (laughs) but I understand the general gist of it, which is that uh, there are natural ways of us understanding um, the flow of traffic, be it pedestrian or or uh, cars or other vehicles, um, which is helpful information or should be helpful information for mm. people planning um, pathways and roads, etc. So I, I understand that. So that's all good. Um, but why do we really care about it? Well, um, th- this is a piece, by the way, that um, is on the um, 99% Invisible site, and we'll, we'll have links to that. Um, and what they said is that in Philadelphia, they used these photographs of these snack downs to campaigners used them and went to the city authorities and said, look, we can expand the pedestrian space here into the road without impeding the flow of traffic. And here's, we've got the photographs, here's the proof, right? So it was a, a very sort of, you know, slam dunk case that you don't need that whole road space for traffic because a lot of it, the cars don't use anyway. It's all going to be very helpful for when cars are driving themselves anyway, presumably. Well, that's right, yeah. And which brings me on to the the, the wider point, which is about big data. Um, when we have driverless cars, um, when we have CCTV everywhere, which to some extent we already do, when we have our mobile phones feeding data about where pedestrians go, which is kind of happening already, um, we're going to have huge amounts of data coming in about the way that people 
and cars, motorists, interact with the built environment, right? So it's going to be like the snack downs, only on a massive scale and in, in great detail. And we'll be, we'll be able to show exactly how people actually use towns and cities rather than planners deciding from the sort of top down, making their best guesses. Which all sounds very helpful, you know, kind of smart infrastructure, if you like, smart transport planning. Um, but big data obviously goes well beyond, uh, you know, cars and GPS tracking and sensors and what have you into all sorts. I mean, in fact, I was gonna say all sorts, in, pretty much into every part of our lives. And I'm thinking kind of healthcare and criminal justice and all sorts of public services, as well as obviously, you know, kind of what social media collects. and. and there's surely quite a lot of risks around using well, this was, data. I'm thinking about um, DeepMind, um, Google's uh, artificial intelligence arm that was um, gathering data, I think, from the NHS, weren't they, uh, in order to look at cancer outcomes, health outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. And you sort of worry, don't you, that this might have discriminatory implications um, for, say, people who possibly have a predisposition for cancer and therefore what does that do to their insurance premiums, that sort of thing. So I, I think that's cause for concern. Well, and there's similar stuff. In fact, Peter, and you and I had a recent discussion on the weekly podcast about the um, risks of discrimination within the use of big data in policing and the criminal justice system. So, I mean, this is a massive worry, isn't it, how the data is used? It is, but I think just as important is how widely available that data is, given that it is going to be used to make decisions in all sorts of policy areas and, and you went through them all everything from healthcare to traffic to policing um, how are we going to be able to challenge the decisions that the people in power make on our behalf right because you know the, this example of the, the snack downs the, these snowy patches that's very visible anyone can come along take a photograph of that big data though is invisible unless you have access to it. But right. it's, it's not—it's not just access, though, is it? Because I mean, under the coalition government that the UK had a few years ago, um, they did a massive sort of—I guess best described as a kind of data dump of public data for people to use. And of course, barely anyone used it because you know the average man or woman—I very much include myself in that—wouldn't know the first thing about mining this data that's been put mm, out yes. and that's before you even think about not the outcomes of algorithms that that you know we make decisions based on but the inputs that create those algorithms in the first place that's right there's all sorts of assumptions that underpin how you construct these databases but this is why you need people that rarely know what they're doing experts sort of interrogating these databases on our behalf and with our interests at stake. If all of this information, if all of this sort of database building is monopolized by just a few people in power, then we're going to find ourselves disenfranchised. But also the problem is, isn't it, that the, the policy makers and the, those people who are, are arbiters, as we've seen from the Zuckerberg testimony at Congress, they are they aren't particularly well versed in things techno are they um techno they're not particularly techno literate and we i just wonder if we are able to trust them with making sensible policy with people data. who are supposed to regulate the people who are supposed to put in the checks and balances 
don't know don't where the checks and balances yeah. have to go. Well, that's right. And we're, we're going to need a new breed of political representatives that do have a great deal of technological knowledge. And they're, they're not all sort of humanities graduates from Oxbridge, but people that are coming to these increasingly computerized decision-making systems um, with the knowledge um, required to challenge them. Do it sort of echoes of Zuckerberg for president, doesn't it? Like Let's not go there. Um, well, or, or, or in fact, not necessarily political people, but perhaps like in most other areas, a sort of independent body who regulates this sort of thing. Absolutely. Anyway, this, this will definitely be a discussion which I'm sure we will be returning to and certainly which will rumble on um, in many debates going on at the moment. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Sally and Peter and James for producing this podcast. Please do subscribe. Please do also check out our other podcasts, um, which we hope you will enjoy just as much as our Unpack Shorts. Um, and please listen again next time. Thank you.